Praise God. Well, what a glorious night. What a wonderful night to come together and thank all those that have participated and involved in sharing their music. And there, there are many more we could have done, but we wanted to keep this service kind of, you know, short because we recognize that it's a family night. Um, but wanted to have all of us have an opportunity to get a flavor, at least a taste, of some of the different giftings. We are such a blessed church and so many gifted people and that God has brought together. I'm, I'm a... Well, I'm just kind of real with you. So I, I, I'm not the kind of guy that thinks of Christmas a long time in advance and plans everything out so that I come down to the last week or so and I just sit back and listen to nice music. And usually it takes me until... Well, I'll tell on myself. When I used to be a lawyer in Boston, I did my Christmas shopping when we closed the office at noon on Christmas Eve and then couldn't figure out why I couldn't find anything. Well, I've gotten better than that. But I don't often, you know, I'm not, it takes me really quite a while to hit me that Christmas is just around the corner. It's hit me now. But I say that because what happens is when it does... Very often there's this mad pressure that comes on you. Oh my goodness, look at all the things that I have to get done. And this year what it's caused me to do is to reflect a little bit. And I spent some time in here this morning doing that. Just reflecting on the meaning of Christmas. And there's so many Christmas messages about the meaning of Christmas. And I don't know that it's possible to come up with an original one. And that's certainly not my intention tonight. But there's something I woke up in the middle of the night with. And I want to share it with you because I believe it will help us. Christmas is unlike any other holiday. We have New Year's, we have, we have July 4th, we have Labor Day, we have Armed Forces Day, we have all kinds of holidays. And those are exactly that, they're a day. They're a day when we come together on July 4th to celebrate the birth of our nation. It's Labor Day when we come to celebrate essentially the end of the summer and the workforce. And each day has a particular significance to it. But Christmas is more than a day, it's a season. And because it's a season, somehow there's a pressure on us to get something out of it, a meaning out of it. And as I come into Christmas, I, I sometimes have got to deal with an attitude, and I know I'm not the only one because I've had other people share it with me this year, that, oh, oh yeah, Christmas is wonderful, but I want to get through it. I want to get it over so I can get back to my normal routine. And I began to think about that and think, my goodness, why? And I think in some cases it's because we have, we're trying to get a meaning out of it and we don't always know what that is. So I'm going to talk for a few moments about the different, the different pressures that are on us to try to get a, a meaning out of Christmas, that we come to the end of this Christmas season and it's been a wonderful time. And why? What makes it a wonderful season? What makes it meaningful? And then I want to talk about the real meaning of it. First of all, we're not alone in trying to figure it out. There's pressure put against us. There's Walmart. <laughs> and TJ Maxx and Target and, you know, all the Macy's and all these things we've been... They started this year somewhere in early November beginning to bombard us, telling us what the meaning of Christmas is. That the meaning of Christmas is what you get somebody else and whether it's the right gift or not. I was raised in a family where part of my family, 
you, you, there was pressure on you to get the right gift. And as a result, I realized as growing up, I, I had a, my stomach would begin to tighten as I'd get near Christmas. And I didn't know why until I looked back on my childhood and realized that so much of, of what my identity was going to be and whether I felt accepted was whether I got the right gift or not. And if you look at a lot of the pressure that's brought against us by advertising, and you've got to come up with the right gift for the right person. I don't know that that's possible. And even if it is, what does it really mean? So there's pressure put on us by, by our advertisers, by the advertisers, by the retailers, and of course, their motive is really not that you'd have a wonderful Christmas. Their motive is really not that sitting around the Christmas tree tonight or tomorrow morning or whatever you open presents, that, that Uncle Harry and Aunt Susie will just be so blessed by this. What they're, of course, meaning is that their bottom line will be improved. And that's fine. But that's a meaning for Christmas that many people have a forced pressure upon us. There are other meanings that are, that are more worthwhile and, and, and more important. It's interesting. Christmas is an amazing time of year. It's, it's the only time of year I know of historically where major world wars who are shooting at each other and bombing at each other 24 hours a day for all year long will stop and take a break on Christmas Eve recognizing that it's a time of peace. Isn't that amazing? And then as soon as it's over, they start bombing each other, shooting at each other all over again. But somehow inherently inside, there's a recognition that there's something special about this, but they don't understand the meaning of it or they wouldn't be bombing each other and shooting each other. There are other meanings to Christmas. To some people, it's the food, and it's the, it's the fellowship, and it's the parties, and you come into it, you know, and you look, oh, well, we'll have an office party, and that's going to be fun, and we're going to have a, uh, you know, a family get-together here, and that's going to be fun, and all the food we're going to eat, and it's like, it'll be fun, but then now we go into New Year's resolution time, right, where we've got to talk about what do I got to do to... And so there's a certain meaning that's, you know, you look back and say, what kind of parties did I go to? Did we have enough good social time together? And was, was that the meaning that I got out of Christmas? Then there's even a, a really a more important meaning, which, which is a wonderful thing, and that's it's a wonderful time for families coming together. There's songs written about it, you know, uh, you know, I'll be home for Christmas, and then it ends with even if it's only in my dreams. There's something about Christmas that, 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 that has a a calling of it's a time, it's a family time where people can to come together as a family and, and what a wonderful time it is. I mean, in our family, we've had our daughter and her family have come all the way from Texas to be together with us and our sons have come up from Nashville. And so it's going to be a wonderful time and it's been an exciting time in our home and, and in our tiny little house to have all of us together and, and it's a wonderful time. It also can be a very difficult time for people. It's also the time of year when very often the suicide rates are the highest and the depression rates are the highest and the hospitals and the emergency rooms find is there's more violence and more things because not everybody's enjoying all that wonderful joy of Christmas, of the fellowship and of the food. And it's a time of expectation. And, so and what is it we're expecting? We're expecting to get something out of it that's meaningful. And then starting December 26th, the sales are on. And the pressure's on again. I remember sitting at our dining room table when our youngest sons were, the, were still in the household, you know, and they all the build up to Christmas. And I, 
there's a little bit of a streak in me, and I look at one of them and say, guess what? It's 364 days till Christmas because <laughs> they'd been counting down. And what I, my point is this. With all that meaning we try to squeeze out of it, whether it's from the shopping or the gifts or whether it's from the time together with friends and the food and the fellowship or the wonderful memories with the family together, there's going to come a point this year where that ends. And all we're left with is memories. A week or so ago, I sat down and began to look at the pictures from last year's Christmas. I sat with my grandson on my desk, on my, not my desk, on my lap at my desk in my office and just flipped through the pictures and was remembering, but it's a memory. It's over, last year. And I guess our hope is we're going to build new memories for this year. 48 hours from now, they'll be over. And they're wonderful and they're good. There's a term that's used out there. You'll see in the movies. And it's like in some of these movies, whether it's White Christmas or some of the others, they're trying to capture what they'll call the spirit of Christmas. That's why they'll, cause a cease, they'll call a ceasefire in the middle of a war on Christmas Eve. There's something about Christmas that's different from any other holiday and they don't understand what it is. They get a sense of what it is, which is while they'll, 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 they'll call a ceasefire for peace. They'll, a, they'll say there's a spirit to Christmas, and, and they don't, but they, don't quite, they can't quite grasp what it is. And what it is is it's like, this, it's like being around a beautiful, like a gardenia bush, and you pick up the aroma of it. And, 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 and you, it's a pleasant smell and you want to be around it. And you're getting a good feeling from it. And then you walk away. You don't even know where it's coming from. You walk away from the bush and that aroma begins to fade away and all that's left is a memory. And that's really what Christmas is. If all we do is build it on presents, food, parties, and even as wonderful it is, time together with family. All those are, are the aroma, the good taste of something that is so much more real and so much more powerful and so much longer lasting. And that's what Christmas really is about. It's the flower itself. It's the bush and the roots of the bush that produce that beautiful aroma of peace and of joy and of love. We're living in a world right now that's trying to squeeze out as much of that aroma today and tomorrow and over the next few days as they possibly can because we live in a world that's starved for this starving for peace, starving for joy, starving for love. And they're going to try to desperately squeeze it out of these moments of presence and food and parties and family. But you can't squeeze it out if you don't have a hold of the source itself. 
I want to read to you briefly the Christmas story. It's interesting because as I was we're going through this, I'm thinking about there's something missing in the way this has been laid out, and that's we haven't read a scripture yet. I want to read a scripture to you. It's the Christmas story, but it's from a different perspective than we usually hear. The Gospel of Matthew tells you a lot about the background of Mary. The Gospel of Mark really doesn't tell us very much about the Christmas story. The Gospel of Luke has most of the details. It's the story of the shepherds and of the wise men. It's the story of, of, of the birth in the manger. It's a story that we typically see in the Christmas pageants and we typically consider to be the Christmas story. But there's another Gospel writer who doesn't approach things the way the other three do. And his story is in here for a reason. And that, of course, is the Apostle John. And I want to read you just a brief portion of that scripture tonight, and then I want to talk for just a moment on what the real source of Christmas really is. In the beginning, and that's before any of this world existed, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that we know that there was a God, and that with Him, before all of eternity, before all of this world was created, there was another eternal being known as the Word. Verse 2 tells us that this Word was a person because it says, He was in the beginning with God. And then it tells us something about Him. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not recognize him. And he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of or out of God. And this word, and this is the Christmas story, this word, this Son of the living God, through whom all that was ever created was created, the source of light and the source of life, this being took on flesh, verse 14 says, and dwelt among us. This is really what Christmas is about from God's perspective. It opens with a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, the source of everything, who dwells in majesty and glory that our eyes couldn't begin to behold, and if they did begin to behold them, they would fail who dwells in a place that the Bible tells us the streets 
are made of gold. He lives on an approachable light who is all-powerful and all-knowing. That means he can do anything. Nothing is hard for him. He never tires. He never gets sleepy. Nothing's hard for him. There's no opposition. The only opposition he ever had was the archangel Lucifer who rebelled against him and that rebellion lasted as long as it takes a lightning bolt to fall to the earth. And he had a son, the Word, which literally means the full expression of him. And this Word, this Son, this other being dwelled in that same majesty, that same omnipotence, that same power, that same glory, that same prestige, were angelic beings that are too amazing to begin to, to, to describe Worship them 24 hours a day. And verse 14 said, This Son of the living God chose to give all that up. All of that up. Philippians chapter 2, we've been studying on Sunday mornings, says He emptied Himself of His glory and His majesty and his privileges, and his power, he emptied himself of all of that to take on the appearance of a man. We just read John's account of that, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now let's talk for a moment about that flesh that he became. He could have come as the Son of God, and stood at the pinnacle of the temple of Jerusalem with all that glory radiating around him, radiating around him, and displayed his wonderful glory and majesty and said, I am the Son of the living God. Come to redeem mankind. Worship me as I've been worshipped in heaven. But he didn't choose to do that. Instead, the Bible tells us he chose to be conceived in the womb of a young girl. He chose to be carried around in her the same way you were carried in your mother's womb. He chose to go through a birth process as you went through. He chose to be, he chose to be totally dependent upon this young mother just as you were totally dependent upon your mother. He chose to need to be fed. He chose to allow himself to endure hunger and tiredness. He chose that. And he chose to have to grow up the way you and I've had to grow up and to learn the way you and I have had to learn and to mature the way you and I have had to mature. The Bible goes on and tells us he also had to learn how to endure and handle temptations, just as you and I have had to learn how to endure and handle temptations. The only difference is where you and I gave in, he never did. 
He had to grow up and understand his calling and his destiny and make the choice to assume his purpose and accept it. And then he had to, he had to handle people brought around him that didn't necessarily treat him the way he should have been treated, that didn't respect him and honor him. His own, these verses said, the own people that he caused to exist denied him and rejected him and laughed at him, made fun of him. Just as you and I have had people reject us, made fun of us, laugh at us, misunderstand us. The difference is he chose to do that. You and I had no choice. He chose to give up all of his privileges and all of his rights and all of his glory. He chose to give it up. You see, the story of Christmas that we typically read out of Matthew and out of Luke really begins in that stable. But the real story of Christmas begins long before. It begins at that point when a decision was made by the Son of the living God to lay aside everything He had and to come to this earth and to be born as a little baby. Why would someone do that? Well, I was thinking about that, and I thought about my own family. And as we began to talk about plans for Christmas, we could hear from them a desire to come home for Christmas. That means they had to leave their homes, they had to buy tickets, they had to make plans, they had to travel across state lines. They had to get in an airplane and go through all the security stuff and with baby and all that you got to go through, but preparation and carrying all the stuff we used to have to carry and all that effort in order to come home, to come all the way from Texas, to come all the way from Tennessee. We're blessed to have one part of the family come a mile <laughs> up the street, but they come. Why? What makes family at Christmas time want to come home? Isn't it love? Isn't it love? We want to be with those because, that, we, that are our loved ones because we love them. So we're willing to leave the comfort of our home, go to the discomfort of an airport or get in a car, or whatever it is you have to go through to travel to be with those that you love the most. Because there's something about love that has to be with those you love. Even as the song says, if it's only in my dreams. The Bible teaches us that love did not originate with us. That love originates with God. The Bible tells us that we only can love others and Him because He first loved us. What that means 
is if what motivates us at Christmas time to go through all the hassles of travel and all the hassles we've got to go through to be with those we love the most, just maybe perhaps what motivated God to lay aside all that He had and travel that incredible distance, not just of space and not just of time, but to leave a one dimension of the spirit realm and submit himself to come under the limitations of the same physical realm you and I do deal with. Perhaps what motivated him was also love. And in fact, it was. That's why Christmas is so powerful. And that's why Christmas is so special. Because what it is is a demonstration of how much God loves you. The scripture that we put on the screen at the beginning says, For God so loved the world. We misread that sometimes. I know we would quote it accurately, but in our minds, we think, For God so loved the church. But at the time it's written, there was no church. God's love is so powerful, so deep, so strong, that it knows no boundaries. It will cross, cross national boundaries to reach literally every human being on the face of this earth. His love is so powerful and so forceful that it will cross economic boundaries. It will reach into the gutter to reach a dying man. I knew as a minister that I, that I knew of, famous minister. And I heard this story that he was in, in, in Calcutta, what was then Calcutta, India, on his way to an auditorium to speak to about 100,000 people. And he was wearing a white suit. And he was being brought, brought there in a, in a limousine that was provided by the organization that had brought him over to speak at their meeting. And as he was turning a corner to prepare to go to this great meeting place, he looked over and there in the gutter was a man dying. And those of you that know very much about the nation of India know that they have a social system called the caste system. And you cannot go from one caste to another, at least you couldn't. And the lowest caste were called the untouchables. And that gives you a little insight into what they were like. And they were literally considered to be people that if you touched, that means you became unclean and impure. And here was a man dying in a gutter, which is not like our gutters today, but it was unsanitary, full of all kinds of filth. And as this limousine slowed down to turn the corner, this evangelist saw this man And I heard him describe this. He said, it wasn't my compassion. It wasn't my love. But somewhere from down inside of me rose up the compassion and love of God 
for this man that others were walking past and didn't even notice this crucial moment of his life. And he told the driver to stop. And he opened the door of his fancy limousine, air-conditioned, and he got out down on his knees in his white suit. And this man lifted his eyes up to him, and he lay down underneath this man and held him in his arms while he died. And you can look at that and say, well, what point is it to it? He died anyway. The point was this. God knew that man in the gutter. And God moved upon someone that was sensitive enough because the heart of God wanted to reach out and comfort that untouchable man lying in that filth with his love. That's a small taste of the love that caused the Son of God to lay aside his white robes, come out of his fancy limousine, and come down to this earth to dwell among us so that he might put his arms around us so that God could look us in the eyes, so that God could hear our voice and we could hear His voice. And then ultimately, that God could do the unthinkable. That God, without any sin, in the form of a man, could allow Himself to be beaten humiliated, disgraced, despised, beaten beyond recognition, and then allow himself to be nailed to a cross and give his life up. What would motivate God to do that? Nothing other than his love for you. And for me. That love is so powerful that its power has endured for over 2,000 years. That love is so powerful that today it is still changing lives 2,000 years later. And that love is the power and the meaning of Christmas. And anything apart from that is like trying to draw the odor of the beautiful gardenia without having the gardenia bush itself. We can get from Christmas good feelings, good memories, good food, good times, good family times together. But it's all going to fade away the way the aroma of the beautiful flower fades away. Jesus wanted to communicate this 
to a young woman one day as he stopped by a well outside the town of Samaria. There was a woman there, and he said to her, Would you give me a drink? And she brought some water to him, and he smiled and said, Woman, if you knew who it was that asked you for water, you would ask of him, and he would give you water from which you would never thirst again. What he would give you would be a well of water down inside of you, springing up unto everlasting life. What the world tries to squeeze out of Christmas, what we so often try to squeeze out of Christmas is the aroma of the real. But without the real, the source of that peace, the source of that joy, the source of that love, it's like the odor of a beautiful flower and it will fade away. Every one of us in this room tonight has some relationship to that life and that love. Most of us have come to drink of this water, to receive this love that God gave 2,000 years ago in the gift of His Savior, of a son. Because that little baby was born with the purpose of dying for your sin and my sin. Most of us in this room have come to receive that gift of God's love. And yet somehow, in the busyness of what we're told Christmas is, somehow under the pressure to produce meaning, whether it's the right present or the right food or it's the good party or it's the family time together, whatever it is, the pressure that we've tried to do distracts us from the source of that real meaning, of that real life, which is the love that God has displayed towards us in giving us His Son. So tonight I want to call us back to that. I want to call you, us, all of us, including me, back to that before we leave tonight and go out into whatever it is you have scheduled and have scheduled tomorrow. Not just to remember what Christmas is about, but to go back and adjust our priority. And it takes some work because there's pressures on you and on me. Pressure to satisfy that meaning from other people and a lot of it's in our own expectation. That's pressure. But remember this, that pressure will never fully satisfy unless we go back in touch with the real meaning of Christmas which is that God so loved me. And God so loved you that He gave up everything He had to become like you and me so that if we will receive Him, we will become 
like him. Now I said, that's where most of us are in this room. Everyone in this room is at some relationship with this true meaning of Christmas. Many of us know this, re- me- this real meaning. Many of us know him. But in all the pressures, we've allowed that to f- real meaning, that relationship to fade away. And this morning I got back in touch with it again, with him again. But there may be some of you here tonight, you've never come to know, receive that real gift that Christmas really comes from. That's not a necktie. It's not a cheesecake or a box of fudge. It's not a new flat screen TV. Those can give temporary pleasure and joy. It's not the most wonderful Christmas party you've ever attended with the most wonderful food. It's none of that. It's far beyond that. It's not the greatest time with the greatest family you've ever had. It's so far beyond that. The true gift of Christmas is that God loves you more than you can ever understand. And he proved it by sending his son to die in your place. As I close this message, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and we're going to pray.